Father, we ask that you would illumine these holy and ancient and sacred and true words, um, and that you would, by your spirit, uh, soften our hearts, that we would understand them. Uh, bless this time and the preaching of your word, for we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Uh, well, good morning. I, um, if I haven't had the pleasure of meeting you, I'm Ronnie. One of the pastors here, and this is my first time to be on the stage, and uh, I didn't, I feel like really emotional, and I like on the verge of tears like all the time, but it's like really emotional because um, I got to see like tons of people wake up super early and like set all this up, and I began to learn about what, how much God has done through his spirit um, over the years, and so um, it's a real honor uh, for me to be here with you. Um, but let's get right into this. We, uh, if you have your Bibles, uh, go ahead and open them. We just heard chapter 11. We're going to be in there for a while. Um, for weeks, we have been studying this really beautiful and confusing letter slash sermon manuscript called the letter to the Hebrews. And uh, this morning, we're going to say perhaps the most famous section of Hebrews, chapter 11. So I'm actually going to slow dance the next couple of weeks in chapter 11, so we'll be here for a little bit. We've been going a little bit fast, but I'm going to slow down. So chapter 11 is known as the faith chapter. Uh, and chapter 11 is like any other portion of scripture. It has a context. And so as is my sort of rhythm, let me just remind you, uh, remind us the context. If you'll remember, Hebrews is this sort of sermon manuscript, this letter that's written to a group of churches outside of Rome who were beginning to experience systemic persecution for following Jesus. And it was coming at the hands of their government, it was coming at the hands of their culture, and even, in some cases, their own families. And so this wasn't the first time that this group of people had experienced a little bit of oppression and persecution. Uh, the first time they were actually able to persevere, right? Uh, the thing is, though, it got a little bit more difficult. And now people were thinking about, like, giving up and walking away from the faith. Some thought that maybe they could just hide in the Jewish religion, and in so doing, they would avoid the oppression, and yet still, they still get to be religious. So they're religious without a cost. Now, um, some of the people, though, who heard, um, who were going through this, they were actually really buoyant. I mean, they were bouncing back. And in fact, in chapter 10... The, the author says to them, he says, in the past, they even joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, he writes them, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession, an abiding one. That's good. I think that's what Hebrews is written to do. It's to produce that kind of people. It's written to produce a life that considers all of the scary possibilities of following Jesus and nonetheless, willingly, joyfully choose that dangerous path, even if it meant their lives and their fortunes, even if all that would be plundered. So in short, Hebrews wants to create lives that are free, radically loyal to Jesus. These are people who are free from their culture's assumptions of style, free from their culture's assumptions of leisure and comfort. These are people who consider the giant sacrifices that need to be made, and they totally joyfully
they do it because they know deep in the pit of their soul that they can't out-sacrifice God. So Hebrews is written to produce that kind of self-sacrificing person. And so what's going to happen in chapter 11, it's going to catalog kind of a whole list of people who made sacrifices to follow and identify with the Lord. And, and let me just, like, up front, the point is not to applaud the people in chapter 11, but it's to think about what they understood about the Lord that led them to make those kinds of sacrifices. Because when you hear stories like the, like the stories that we're going to hear over these next couple weeks, you got to ask yourself, what's my life going to be about? What's my life about? Are we going to spend ourselves and lay down our lives? Because here, here's the deal, team. Like, I, I'm not here to increase your comforts. I don't want us to live like our house pets. Our pets' lives consist of eating, sleeping, and amusements. And we live like this. And the worst part is we're totally happy with it. Small lives. You know, like, sometimes you'll see, like, these kind of weird, big-haired, televangelist, fundamentalist types on TV. And they'll start talking about God's wrath. And they'll start talking about, like, I don't know, tsunamis or earthquakes or fire raining or whatever it is. You know what I've been thinking about lately? Is I wonder if God's wrath is none of those things. It's just him lifting his hand. So that we're just totally comfortable with selfish lives. It just feels good. I wonder if that's what God's wrath is like. So Hebrews is written to make us discontent. <laughs> like what? Who says that? Sounds funny, right? What God wants is to create in you and me a holy discontentment. Now I know that kind of creates all kinds of problems for evangelical thought, particularly against people who are totally into what I call like the, the therapeutic gospel, right? The therapeutic gospel wants you to be perfectly content living like a pet and God helping you to do that, right? But the thing is, is God wants to put faith in you and faith that makes us long for and even groan for something different, for something better. It's a discontentment a holy discontentment, that's actually a foundational part of faith, right? And we need to think about this in the faith chapter. It's a holy discontentment that's actually the combustion to faith and hope. Since chapter 11 is the faith chapter, we've got to get this right. You'll look at verse 1. It says, faith is being sure of what we hope for. So do you see that connection between hope and faith? So hope by definition, is something we do not have, right? So if a person hopes to be married, it's because they don't have a spouse, right? If a, if a person hopes to get a job, it's because they don't have one. You see how that works? So hope is generated by a discontentment of our current circumstances that creates this longing for something better, something different. And so chapter 11 is full of examples of people who are animated by faith and hope. They refuse to eat and sleep and be amused like pets. They wanted, man, they wanted the promises of Jesus, even if it cost them everything. That's how bad they wanted it. So um, their courageous lives flowed out of their faith. And so we've got to ask this morning, what is faith? Because I'll tell you what, like superstition or like intellectual assent, 
It won't get you dying for anything, I promise. Uh, it's not going to get you to give up your comforts. So what kind of faith do these people have? So that's what I'm going to answer. And we're going to learn this morning that faith is really multidimensional. So I'm going to look at four aspects of faith. So for you note takers, if you look at the text, you'll notice, look there at verse 3, verse 4, verse 5, and verse 7. They all begin with the words, by faith. Do you see that? So we're going to let that kind of be the rubric. So we're going to look at verse 3, 4, 5, and 7. And it's going to be faith believes, faith perseveres, faith pleases, and faith acts. So those things. So let's, uh, let's go ahead and begin with faith believes, verse 3. Look at verse 3 again. By faith, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. Well, what's this verse trying to say? It's saying that the universe is not self-explanatory. See, there's two important questions that you and I have for the universe. The first question is, is what is the universe? And like scientists do a great job making observations, describing what we see. The second question, though, is, why is there a universe? Now, on occasion, naive scientists will try to answer that question. And at the moment they try to answer that question, they enter into the realm, they, well, they leave the discipline of science and enter into the realm of philosophy and, and theology. The problem is, is scientists aren't that good at it, right? Um, secular scientists have a philosophy, and I will even call it a religion, but it's called naturalism, right? And it purports that the universe is indeed self-explanatory, that nothing exists outside of the, the natural realm, what you see, what is observable. And so they'll argue that all of life, all of your emotions, all of your reasons are simply just a combination of random molecular interactions in an evolutionary process without any deeper transcendent explanation. Now, that sounds like a scientific premise. You know what it really is? It's a religious premise. Now, let me explain. The scientific method goes something like this. So a scientist observes a phenomena, and he says, what causes this? What governs this? And so the scientist poses a theory, or really a hypothesis, tries it out through testing and observation. He evaluates the theory to see if it anticipates and explains what is happening. Does the theory adequately explain what is happening? And a theory is considered a good one or a bad one based on its power to explain. And so we call this its explanatory power, right? So when a person says that the universe is all physical and only physical, that is to say it's self-explanatory, that then we need to see if it actually accounts for all of the data. And a lot of you guys know that I've had the privilege of you know, doing some graduate studies, both in sciences and philosophy and theology, so I dabble, right? Some of you like this part of the sermon. Some of you are like, dude, can you please move on? I'll just do the close notes. Here we are. Here's what world-class philosophers are saying. They're saying, if the world is an accident, and the physical universe is all that there is, and if the universe is a series of random molecular interactions, 
then we must conclude and say that our lives and emotions and our feelings are also explained through the same filter in terms of molecular interactions. But if that is true, why use rationality? I mean, why is rationality of value in a universe exclusively governed by random molecular interactions and evolutionary processes? There is no reason to trust reason, you see? I mean, why trust a mind if it is the product of evolution? Because it would be both random and self-preserving, right? And that would be the grid to interpret anything that exists. So why trust it? I mean, you do trust it. Don't hear what I'm not saying. You do trust it, and you should. But there's no basis for it. And with this premise, there would be no basis for speaking about meta things like morality. Think about genocide. Think about racism. We all have these moral feelings of outrage against racism and genocide. But are those feelings simply a product of molecular interactions? Are those feelings simply an accident, as random as the process? What about love? What about love? Is love exclusively a chemical reaction? Because the thing is, is like naturalists, right? They kiss their babies at night and put them to sleep, and they love them, and they act as if that love is real. Here is the thing, everyone. Everyone is borrowing and dancing with metaphysics while masquerading and feigning like, I don't know, like pure materialists or naturalists, right? Here's the point. If a premise like naturalism leads you to a conclusion that doesn't actually make sense of the world that we live in and these things that make the world so important to us, these profound feelings of love and moral outrage, the things that bring meaning to our life, if they can't explain those obligations, then we have to reconsider the premise. See, the thing is, is naturalism actually does not have explanatory power. It doesn't explain the most important parts of our life. But, offer, but verse 3 does offer a premise that does make sense of our existence. That God made everything. That the world is physical, but there's more beneath what we can see. The faith premise that God made everything. Now that doesn't mean that we can understand everything, right? That's not what I'm saying here. But it's far and away the best explanation for our human experience, Right? So to have Christian faith, it requires that you believe this, even though you cannot see it. Now think about it. If you believe that the physical universe is all that exists, if that's what you believe, then you will not die for anything. Not like the people in chapter 11 that we're going to read about. You're not going to give up your comfort for anything. You're not going to risk because you feel pressed to preserve the only life you have. So this physical existence. But faith says that there is more to this universe than what we see. Right? That's what verse 3 is saying. This isn't, faith isn't superstitious. It's not anti-intellectual. It is indeed well-reasoned. And it makes sense of the world we live in. So faith believes. All right. I got that. I know 
for you, for you, you philosophers that just scratched the surface, please don't at me with your Twitter. No one Twitters me, that's a joke. All right, here we go. Um, let's move to our second point. I'm gonna try to keep this one a little shorter. Faith also perseveres. Verse four, look at verse four. By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts. And through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. Now, this particular story is of interest to me because Abel died, right? And so Abel actually was killed for his faith. Abel's faithfulness provoked the hatred of his brother. We know the story. It cost Abel his life to practice his faith, and he never tasted, he never enjoyed the physical benefits of his faith. He was faithful, and he was rewarded with assassination. And you know what? God was really pleased with Abel. Isn't that, like, unnerving? Like, are you guys, like, reading what I'm reading? You know what makes the story so uneasy for us? It doesn't fit the narrative of God that we think of. Right? Because if we believe, because generally speaking, we kind of, we hate to say it like this, but we believe that God exists to make us happy. Right? We think that God is ultimately concerned about us. The evangelical church even has worship songs that turn Jesus and God into our buddy, Jesus into our boyfriend. It's a little bit weird, a little bit awkward. And we think that God loves us more than he loves anything else. And that the cross is just about us. Spoiler alert. It's not. Now listen, because I want you to hear what I'm saying. Jesus loves you very much. He loves you so much that he willingly went on a cross and hung there for you. But the cross is so much more than just about you and me. You and I are the dew in the morning sun compared to God's timeline. I mean, we are a two-second time blip, soundbite. I mean, God has no beginning and no end. We exist to bring glory to God in any way that he sees fit. We belong to him. We serve his purposes. You know, the Apostle Paul in Romans, he's going to say it really starkly. He's going to say it like this. He'll say, you will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O oh man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honor and the other dishonor? Here's the point. This is what Apostle Paul understood. Here's what all these guys understood is that this is the Lord we're talking about. God has purposes of which you and I cannot see, and we belong to him for his glory. And with this faith, Abel persevered, even when it cost him his life. So what's this mean for us? Our faith must persevere, even when it costs us everything. And here's why. We have our purposes in this generation, just like Abel. Notice the very curious words at the very end of verse 4. It says, and through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. You see that in verse 4? Now, how does his faith still speak, even though he's dead? 
How's that happen? Here's how. The Lord was glorified by Abel's faith and his faithfulness, and it continues to have a subsequent impact in, gener in generations to come. Right? Now, if you believe that, if you believe that, two things will happen. First, God will loosen your grip on this life and its comforts. I mean, if God asks you to make a sacrifice, you will do it by faith because you know, because you know that there is something better than that thing in your hand. And the second thing is you will reinterpret your sufferings and your afflictions differently because you know that they're short in comparison to eternity. And you'll do so with hope that your faith and sacrifice will have an effect on subsequent generations. You'll do so knowing that your faith will continue to speak. You see that? Listen, you guys, if I can just get vulnerable for a second. There are things in my life that I've just prayed that God would just take away. See, in my family, um, there's a lot of junk. There's a lot of secrets. There's a lot of stuff that no one wants to talk about. It's too messy. It's too embarrassing. And uh, it's, it's, uh, <clears throat> it's messed me up in a lot of ways, right? And there are nights when I will lay awake in my bed begging God that he would take it away. But I also pray this. I'll say, Lord, I will keep these afflictions and I will gladly absorb them if they will turn to dust with me. I will take the pain if I can keep my own son from having to suffer the same junk that I have. I will persevere because I want the cycle to end with me. My faith is teaching me to persevere in order to bring glory to God so that my faith will still speak into the life of my son and my daughters, even after I'm dead. And that's what I want for you. See, faith perseveres. All right. There's a third aspect in this text. It's that faith Pleases. Look at verses 5 and 6. Again, by faith, Enoch was taken up so that we should not see death, and he was not found because God had taken him. Now, before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. And without faith, it is impossible to please him, for whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. All right, so Enoch, again, really interesting story, because God just, like, takes him up, right? Like, Enoch doesn't die, apparently. And let me just, heads up, this is not a promise for you. I know that's how we all want to go. It's not going to happen. Just, I don't want to ruin your day, but there we are. Here's what the author wants you to understand. So Enoch was a part of the generation that populated the earth right before Noah, Right? You remember what happened to those guys, right? Massively, massively evil. Uh, if ever there was a culture that was oppressive against a person for identifying with God, it was Enoch's culture. I mean, it was harder for Enoch 
than it was for the original audience who's receiving this letter to the Hebrews, right? But it says in the very original text, the Old Testament, it says that Enoch walked with God. Now, the Septuagint, which is like the Greek version of the Old Testament, it translates walking with God. And walking with God is translated as pleasing God, all right? Like what you see right there in verse, um, right the end of verse 5. So, to walk with God means to please God. Are y'all following this? So Enoch went around talking with God and being faithful to him, trying to please him in a culture that hated God and hated the people who loved him, right? So like, how in the world did he do it? Well, first, it says, verse 6, he believes that God exists. Remember, you know, I got to remember, Enoch did not see God like Adam did, right? He was walking by faith. Being an atheist would have been implausible to him. It would have been absurd to him. He just talked to him. There's actually more than that. Enoch also believed, look at the very end of verse 6, that God rewards those who earnestly seek him. Now that's, that's like an additional step, right? That's a step that's really uh, relevant for us. So like in our day and age, there really are not a lot of like pure atheists. I mean, most people... I would say have like a generic spiritual disposition. I think that's true even in Denver. Like people have like a generic spirituality. But here's the difference, you guys. God's existence makes no difference in their lives. I mean, think about it. What's the difference in the life of an atheist and in the life of a lukewarm Catholic or a lukewarm Protestant? Like what's the difference? Neither the atheist nor the religious person gives away their money. Neither of them murder or steal. Neither of them go to church. Both get divorced at the same rate. Both idolize education and value a good-paying job as being more important than sacrificing for Jesus. People who believe in God's existence and people who don't virtually live the same life. And here's the point. It's not enough to just believe that God exists, right? True faith seeks to please God because it understands the imminent, imminent, um, intimate nature of God. God is a father who rewards those who earnestly seek him, verse 6. So God is not a thing. He's not a premise to be accepted. He is a person with whom to have a relationship. And let me show you how this works, because I've learned a lot about the Lord um, as, through being a parent, right? So our twins, when they were in kindergarten, they, um, they discovered coloring books. And all they wanted to do was color, and I mean like all the time, hundreds and hundreds of pages of coloring all over our house. Can I get an amen, Lopats, right? You know what I'm talking about here? Uh, and um, every time they were done with a page, they would come to me and say, look, Daddy, look. And I, of course, would reward their work with a compliment. I'll say, wow, that's so beautiful. Great job. And with that small little compliment, huge smiles would radiate from their faces. And do you know why? Because something deep in their hearts just wants to please me. They say, Daddy, I made it for you. <laughs> they deeply want to please me. I mean, they can't help it. It's, it. 
it's it's not something I've ever taught them, right? Parents don't just teach them to give us compliments, you know, like, they just do it, right? Simply by being in a loving relationship creates a desire, a longing in their soul to please me and to make me proud of them. When you have faith, you find in your soul this unquenchable desire to please the Lord. All right, this is not about following some rule, right? It's the overflow of your faith in being in relationship with our loving God. Faith puts in us the desire to do what the Lord wants us to do, even if it's sacrificial, even if it's radical. You'll give away your very favorite picture, you see. Y'all, this is really important for us because life in this world is so seductive. It's easy for us to become content with eating and sleeping and amusements. And the only power that there is to break out of this cycle and to begin a life that sacrifices everything comes from this internal motivation to please the Lord more than anything. The desire to please the Lord through faith has to be stronger than the desire to please yourself. Faith through hope is the only agent strong enough for you to change your life and to have a meaningful one. All right, last one. So we looked at how faith believes, faith perseveres, faith pleases. Here's our last one, faith acts. So one of the interesting things, you know, commentators will tell you this, about the word faith in the Greek, the word is pistis, is that that word means both faith and faithfulness, right? There's no distinction between these two words in the Greek. There's volumes of discussions on this word. For instance, in Habakkuk 2.4, it says, the righteous shall live by faith. But it's perfectly correct to say the righteous shall live by faithfulness, right? It's, it's the same. So what? Well, this implies that faith Intrinsic to the word itself has ethical implications, right? It affects our decisions. Faith is, is not something that we just, it, it's not just this intellectual thing that we acknowledge. It's more than that. Faith acts. Faith moves. Faith is practiced. Or it's not faith at all. This is what verse 7 demonstrates. Look at verse 7. It's our last one. By faith, Noah being warned concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this, he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. So, this like depicts Noah choosing, uh, choosing God, forsaking the world, even though there's this immense amount of pressure to forsake God, right? So, I, I just like, think about the scene for me for just a second. So Noah apparently hears a voice from the clouds. He begins to build a boat a thousand times too big for his family and 500 miles from the nearest ocean, all because God told him to. Like, isn't that absurd? That is the point. It's absurd. It's absurd. And it's absurd that you would give away your money to the church and to missions. And it's absurd that you would abstain from sex, even though your culture tells you that that's how authenticity comes. It's absurd that you would skip 
family Christmas and go and work in an orphanage in Nicaragua. It's all absurd. It's absurd that you would dedicate time each week tutoring students in depressed neighborhoods. It's absurd. But here's the thing. Faith calls you to act. The world says, eat, sleep, entertain yourself. But Jesus says, do something absurd. Risk your life. Give it away. Don't be content with a pet's life. Allow holy discontentment to move in you to make a difference. Reorganize your life around the realities of an unseen God. And listen, if you start doing this, yeah, people are going to reject you. You're going to look a little bit funny. You might not get invited to the next happy hour. It's possible. Just like the original audience in Hebrews, there was this immense pressure to hide or to give up. Don't give up. Don't give up. Or in the words of the author in chapter 10, he says, don't throw away your confidence. It will be richly rewarded. We're assured of this because there is more to this life than this present existence. This life is just due in the morning sun. All right, uh, so let me quickly conclude. So what I was trying to do this morning is this four dimensions of Christian faith, right? It believes, perseveres, pleases, and acts. Faith is more than just simple belief. And some of you, because I know... I know you, you're like me. You look at these four aspects of faith and you, are, you realize that your faith is indeed weak. Your horrors and fears are confirmed. I'm a failure. I'm weak. I'm tired. I'm sick. My heart is sick. And I'm constantly like a dog re returning to my throw up, returning to my sin. God wouldn't want me. And you know, like you know that God sees all that you are. And that's the point. Christ knew that you were going to be messy. Even before all of eternity, God saw your pride. He saw your sin. He saw your weak faith. We, you know, we deceive ourselves when we think that if God knew who, we're going, who we would turn out to be, that somehow he would not have gone to the cross. God knew. Christ knew that you were going to be drawn to things that are wicked. That's what the cross is all about. That's the point, that you are going to fail, that you're going to stumble, that you're going to feel awkward and distant. And that's the point. The cross is this mighty picture of the jealous love of a holy God for you. And God looks at the mess and says, I want you in my family. I'll do anything to have you in my family. I will pay the price of my own son's life to have you in my family. Do you see how far God's love is willing to go for you? Like, let that sink in. All these names that we're going to study these next few weeks in chapter 11 are just messed up people who were enchanted by the promise of that jealous love. That was the basis of their faith. That kind of passionate love stole their hearts and it loosened their grip on this life. 
They fixed their eyes on Jesus, not out of duty. They just couldn't help themselves. They couldn't take their eyes off of him. They wanted that beauty at any cost. That's the essence of faith, you guys. That's what we're talking about. Would you let yourself be enchanted by that love? It's radical, it's risky, it's scary. It takes a whole lot of faith. But that's what, that's what DPC wants to tell everyone, whoever would listen. That's what we want everyone to know. That's what this community is about. Let me just finish with a quote that we used last week. Jim Elliott, he is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Let's pray. Father, I just pray for um, faith to believe. And uh, we live a messy, sometimes stumbling life. It's all true. We need your help to believe these words. Lord, don't, uh, don't let us leave today just with another sermon service in our hip pocket. That spirit that was poured out 2,000 years ago, may that spirit work on our hearts. Oh, we beg it. We beg this of you, Lord. May your spirit work and change us. Awaken faith. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.